Hello, my name is Nick Spasic, and you're listening to From and Inspired by, a podcast about soundtracks and the people who make them. On this episode, we speak with composer Timothy Williams about his work on everything from the recent heavy metal horror, We Summon the Darkness, to Marvel movies like Guardians of the Galaxy. Hey there. Sorry for the massive delay on this episode. I bought a new computer and had to transfer all of my files over and get everything set up, and it took way longer than I expected when trying to fit it in alongside a bunch of freelance writing assignments, which had fast turnarounds. This is also in addition to the fact that it took me an hour, hour and a half just to get the drivers updated to the point where I was able to get my computer to recognize the microphone so that I could record the audio that you're hearing right now. So, again, sorry, and we'll make it up to you with a new episode this coming Monday. Composer Timothy Williams has begun to make a name for himself with recent films like the heavy metal horror of We Summon the Darkness and the supervillain origin tale Brightburn, with scores that manage to straddle two worlds simultaneously. Williams is also a longtime orchestrator and conductor, having tackled the likes of Guardians of the Galaxy and Deadpool 2. His skillful work around pop song needle drops and big-time action means that we had a lot to discuss in this interview, and it was a real blast to hear some behind-the-scenes tidbits about all of these films. so much for taking time to talk to me about this like i'm a big fan of a lot of the work you've done um especially the most recent uh release which is the score for we summon the darkness um oh, thank you so much this is the uh like second um horror film that you've done in in 
as, as the primary composer uh, in, in, in quick succession. Um, like you, you've done, you did Brightburn last year. Um, right. And you've, you've worked on a lot of uh, genre entertainment uh, here and there. Um, what was there something really appealing about being able to work in sort of like a retro mode for We Summon the Darkness? Yeah. Um, so the interesting thing with, you know, you know, obviously horror is one of those great genres to score because you're having to, you know, you're having to set up. I always see, see it as sort of life normal is what I call it. <laughs> um, you, you, want, it you want to create music for people so that you get to know and enjoy the characters and then there's, you know, life fucked up, which is where things go horribly <laughs> wrong. Um, and, you know, trying to build that empathy into a character is, 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 is really good. Um, because then when things go wrong, the, the horror is much more intense because you really want the person to try and survive. Um, and so with Brightburn, what was, what was really cool was it, it was a twist on the horror story in that you had... Uh, the typical elements of horror, but you also had the superhero side of things that needed to be covered. So doing Brightburn was a lot of fun of trying to find a language to create horror, but also superhero. So when We Summon the Darkness came along, what was really exciting for me was how do I take those same, those same elements of creating life normal, but you're in the 80s, <laughs> and then create things when things you know go sideways how do you create a horror language the other thing that really appealed to me about um we summon the darkness is that it's it's actually a very funny film it's it's oh, it's, yeah. kind of, it's one of those films that you know yes it's horror but it it's primarily a dark comedy um and when i watched it it was that aspect that really appealed to me that the music needed to not only be horror not only be retro but also needed to have some ability to very subtly support the comedy of the absurdity of the <laughs> of the scenario. Um, so as far as doing a retro score, what was really cool was um, I, I have a bunch of uh, amazing scents from the 80s. I have the, the Korg Monopoly, <laughs> which was like one of the first, one of the early scents that came out. Um, it's so old, it doesn't even have MIDI. I, I hope that's not too like nerdy for people, but please get nerdy. you know MIDI is how you can connect a computer to a, a synth and send the notes. Um, it doesn't have that. It has nothing that recalls anything. So you're creating a sound by turning knobs, and once that sound is where you want it, you have to record it right away. Um, so that was very exciting to do a score where the moment you turn the knob, the sound is gone forever. It's it's a very organic process. Um, and very experimental process. And this was the first opportunity I'd really had to score a film using um, vintage synths. The other synth I have is a Juno 106, Roland Juno 106, and it's both these synths have those sort of classic 80s sounds. So for me, the, the feel of being able to score something with a bit of a nod to, you know, John Carpenter and um, maybe even sort of Peter Gabriel, that kind of really interesting dark 80s feel was uh was exciting and and 
you know, something that you, you kind of dream of as a composer to, to have that opportunity to just use different, different colors and different tones. Well, I know uh, you only get to use. I know when I spoke uh, with uh, Junkie XL a few years ago uh, for the release of the original Deadpool, like he was very excited about getting, like he wasn't using so many vintage synths, but he was excited about getting to go back and like delve into sounds that he wouldn't have any other reason to use. Sort of like uh, specifically the, uh, the 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 one I'm thinking of is that like synclavier, uh, you know. Yeah sound that is so very he's like you know i once i've used it for this like i can't use it in anything else because it'll just see like it'll seem so you know a throwback and naughty to this specific sound but there's something very wonderful about having a chance to use something you'd have no other reason to use exactly um and i think what's what's also exciting about these synths is that you, as you're turning the knobs it manipulates the sound you can filter the sound and it's it's so specific to that period of time you hear you i mean there's just so many sounds that you hear with that kind of filter coming in and coming off um and pulses and all that kind of stuff that that, that immediately evoke that period of time and same with the percussion too like again it's this is there's you know, nothing in this film that I can use again because it is <laughs> it is so specific. Um, with the with the percussion, you're dealing with, you know, again the synclavier. You're dealing with um, the lindrums uh, and um, uh, y- you know these very very specific percussion sounds. Um, th- that it was really fun because I just don't get to use I just don't get to use these. Um, percussive sounds in current scoring so it was nice to be able to kind of go back i grew up with these synths um and and this for me was such a great way to go back to what made me fall in love with writing music was the ability to manipulate sound and and find really interesting cool sounds so it was for me it was kind of a bit of a full circle because i i started on the juno 106 that was the first (laughs) synth i ever bought so to go back and kind of relive that was a lot of fun what i find really interesting is sort of like we summon the darkness is very much like at its outset has this very heavy metal tone you know they 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 use some very specific metal songs as part of it and i know you've worked on some other films uh such as like deadpool 2 and both of the guardians of the galaxy films that are are films that are very much like sort of built around pop song needle drops um was was it uh, sort of uh, what was the experience like working on we summon the darkness where like there is this heavy metal tone but there's not like a lot of heavy metal music per se once you get past like maybe the first like 10 or 15 minutes yeah so i i think the premise of you know them going to the met- the heavy metal concert is is really the kickoff for the film, and that was uh, one of the things that Mark Myers and I discussed uh, in terms of the tone of the score, was that we we wanted to create this. Um, you'll notice at the beginning of you know the movie, there's this sound that's. It, 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 I describe it as almost like a like a shark or some kind of predator <laughs> stalking, and I wanted it, it kind of goes. 
I think you hear it right at the beginning and it's a sort of rolling sound. And it was one of the first sounds that I created. Um, and it's, again, it's sort of a throwback to sort of this 80s feel. But it, it, I had spoken to him. I, I said, I just want the sense constantly of, because you never know who the predator is and you want that sense of the predator. Yes. Right from the get-go, um, that there's, some, there's something stalking. And as you get more into the film, you start to realize, you know, there are twists and turns and you start to realize, um, you know, that the, the, the predator is closer than you think. <laughs> uh, and then it starts to move more into, not to, not to give away too much of the plot, but basically they're not very good at, uh, the, the, the killers are not very good. So you get into this ra- rather funny scenario where imagine if you had like, uh, you know, Jason being someone who really wasn't a great serial killer. Um, and that for me was really the essence of the dark comedy of the fact that what happens when, when you have a bad killer and it goes wrong and, <laughs> and, and devolves from there. So we wanted some kind of a language that would, would, would harken back to that kind of 80s film score, but still be able to maintain some of the comedy in the later parts. And there's something, I don't know, there's something inherently, like if you think of Beverly Hills Cop and you think of some of these other uh, great 80s films, there's something inherently comedic sometimes about the kind of the pulsing, plucking sounds that you can create. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, for me, was just making sure that we could keep that shift of going from keeping that kind of dark predatorial feel, but then starting to inject. Um, there's a scene where two, two of the characters who were badly injured are basically trying to escape and they're using they're grabbing things from the kitchen um like like cookie trays and whacking the attackers with those um and it's it's a really really funny scene and i wanted the sense of just like this bizarre these sort of little synth motifs that are almost like popcorn just kind of uh and just very straggly and atonal um to create that sort of the comedy of them just trying to to uh, escape but not not in a not in a very effective way they're just kind of grabbing whatever they can to get out of the situation um and i think that that to me is what i loved about the film was that it is it's a really fun film it's not it, it is not the film you expect um and uh that's what drew me to it was i just had a big smile on my face once once i realized what was going on it was uh, uh a really fun film to watch Thank you for phrasing it that way. I think that is a very perfect way of sort of like acknowledging a question. I wasn't quite sure how I'd be able to ask it because phrasing it wrong kind of gives away the plot of the film. But like the fact is like for the better part of the first 15, 20 minutes, you're not quite sure who (laughs) the bad guys are. Like who are your villains in this piece? And I was really kind of curious as to how you walk that line without, you know, you want to foreshadow, but you don't want to tip your hat musically. Like, you don't want right. to give away the game. And I think you did a very good job of explaining that. Oh, thanks. Yeah, and that was a discussion the director and I had. I said, how much How much are we tipping the hat? And he said, not at all. It's We're, we're setting the movie up as really not knowing what's going on until there's you know a great twist and you know i'm sure most people can pre-guess what it's going to be but but the the twist is great and 
um, it just sets the movie up as something completely different. And, um, you know, one of the things that I loved about the film, and I just have to say it right up front, is the acting is out of this world. Um, you know, you have a cast, Alexand- uh, you know, Alexander Daddario, um, Keen Johnson, Maddie Hassan, Amy Forsyth, Logan Miller, and Austin Swift. It's like a little ensemble piece, and it's really just the six six people plus obviously Johnny Knoxville and and some great walk-ons. Um, oh, oh, I agree. Like it, Amy Forsyth is great in everything I've seen her in, but like Maddie Hassan steals this movie so much. Doesn't she? I mean. And and it was just again, I, it's t- it's tricky to talk about the film without giving stuff away. But just the hair product scenes and <laughs> um, just just the fire and everything over the top. And my favorite, of course, is 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 the whole uh, weed whacker, um, <laughs> you know, being used. I was just it just I watched the film. My mouth was on the floor, and I was just howling hysterically for the back half of the film. Just going, this is brilliant. So much fun. Um, but I thought the acting was so good, and it, it's such amazing, really amazing uh, turns. And again, that, that's also part of the emotional journey was, you know, there's that scene where the stepmom comes home, and she's basically trying to get her Coke and her money and her passports <laughs> <laughs> from upstairs. But you have this really, that was one, like one of the funnest scenes I got to score, because you had so many balls in the air of the plot. You had killer in the house you had um you know the the two guys are in the pantry with the arm bleeding out and all of that and and then you have this clueless stepmom coming to the house and heading up uh to grab her passport and do her lines of coke and so for that i i just had this sort of ostinato that just kept going through the whole thing it was like percussion and you know 80s 80s sort of drumming percussion and um, this, this ostinato riff on, on the synth. And then you, you, you went from things that made you laugh to the dire circumstances of the two guys in the pantry to um, Amy Forsyth and, and just her emotional journey of, you know, maybe um, just trying to work out what she was going to do. So within the space of, say, four or five minutes, there was a lot of different intercuts of different emotions and i just wanted to keep this ostinato going through all of this and just color each scene differently as you come to it um making it lighter for the mom making it darker and more emotional um you know for the for the other characters um and still keeping and building suspense through to the very end because it has a fairly gruesome outcome so um, building that suspense through the whole thing. So it was a lot of fun to try and juggle all those different colors uh, while still keeping uh, that this ostinato going through the whole through the whole queue. One of the things I, I, I'm sort of curious about regarding your career is um, in addition to being a composer, you are also a conductor and an orchestrator. Um, and I don't often get a chance to speak with people like that. Like I've spoken with uh Artie Kane who who who's um oh, amazing <laughs> conducted yeah who's yeah yeah I uh for has done work I think as many people know for John Williams and James Newton Howard and Danny Elfman yeah. um and yeah. all of that and it, it's sort of it's I always find it fascinating because um 
I'm curious as to what conducting, like if it's easier to be a conductor and orchestrator having like worked on several different levels of that project or like what is sort of the yeah, difference I, of just I, being I, a conductor? I, I tend to liken it like, you know, they're very, very different parts of, um, you know, the process. And I think the easiest way for me is to think of the conductor as, as the composer as like the screenwriter and the um, conductor is more like the, the director, a producer. So, when you're when you're composing when you're composing something you're creating all the material that is all the music um, for the film, and then when it shifts into the producing of the music as an orchestrator, whether it's something I've written or something someone else has written, I get to think of it differently and think about how do I how do I take what is a demo. Um, which has been written purely for the purposes of trying to convey what the music is going to sound like to a director. How do I take that and make it so that it's going to sound as good, if not better, for live players? Um, and I've been very fortunate because um, I've been able to work with, you know, some of the best musicians in the world at some of the best <laughs> yeah. places. Um, and so it's it, it, there's just something about having 70 to 90 people in a, in a room where... It, the sound and just the tech and the shaping and what you can do with that sound is is um, is really incredible. And then when you get to conduct it, you're literally in the best seat in the house. Uh, and as a conductor, you really get to shape the music and interpret the music. So if you think of you know if you think of the the composing as really the screenplay, all all the essential words are written there, and then when you're conducting and you've orchestrated, you're, you're trying to bring it to life. And um, you find things in the music, when you when you suddenly hear the full brass section kick in, it can suddenly take the, the thing to a whole new level. And one of the things when you're recording is you're watching it against the film. And you have to make choices when you're recording, because sometimes things might be too big for the scene or vice versa, they might be too small. You've got to make sure you're building to the right hit points. Uh, making sure that the music um, lands exactly at the right color and emotion uh, and feeling. Um, one of one of the one of the greatest moments I had was you know conducting uh, in Guardians of the Galaxy two when Yondu dies, sacrifices mm. himself. It's such a powerful emotional moment. Um, funnily enough, James James Gunn. Um, has a, there's a great YouTube clip that James Gunn took of us recording that uh, piece of music. But again, it's, it's, it's a slow build and it's just an amazing moment. And so working with the musicians and bringing out that emotion that's in, in the music is, is such a, a fun part. And I think both help each other. You know, when you're composing music, you think of what it's going to sound like with live musicians and how it's going to translate and, and when you're producing the music, you're you're taking great demos, but you're taking them to the next level and really trying to bring out the most you can to help support the film, help tell the story and really move the audience, you know, and, and take them on that journey with the film. Um, and it's the nice thing about music is that it's it's a very important way to communicate emotion to the audience um, and help them really 
in, you know, enjoy the journey and go along, go along with the uh, journey of the story, the arc of the, of the actual story they're watching. So it's, it's tremendously exciting to be, you know, involved in that and doing that. And you feel it, you feel it when, when these, when the, these musicians play a take that's moving, it's just like watching an actor who's just given the best take, you know, the best performance of their life. Um, it's very similar. You're watching just going, wow, <laughs> you know, <laughs> some, some magic happens. Okay. This is going to seem like a very strange question, but like it came up when I was explaining your, your, um, your oeuvre to my wife last night. Um, because you did Brightburn, sort of like one of the, the interesting things about that movie is that the song that plays over the end credits um, was at the, the time uh, a smaller a smaller song, but then ended up becoming one of the biggest songs of 2019. And I'm talking about Billie yeah. Eilish's Bad Guy. Um, yeah. I, and I'm, I'm just like wondering, like, how is that for you as a composer to to have, you know, worked on the score for this film for so long and then have like at the very end, uh, like this pop song all of a sudden just like. Um, it's amazing. I, I'm such a huge Billie Eilish fan. Um, and um, she, 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 you know, she's. Uh, She's such an incredible, just an incredible artist. So all I can say was I was beyond honored to have like my music end and her song come in. <laughs> and um, it, it never hurts a movie to have like an end credit song that's that big. Um, I remember there was a lot of secrecy around it. Um, and... Um, you produce, you know, the director and producers were like, "You won't believe what song we've gotten for the for the end credits," and they're like, "You can't tell anyone, but yeah, <laughs> Billie Eilish." I was like, "No way!" So, you know, that 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 always like talk about pressure to write a good score. <laughs> you know, when the end credit song is going to be by Billie Eilish, um, but no, it was very very cool, and um, yeah, I was delighted that we that the producers were able to get that. Um, the other time we had a song that, that was really fun in that regard was um, when we did, you know, we were working on Deadpool 2. Um, there was a lot of secrecy regarding the fact that there was this just beautiful song, um, Ashes, that had been <laughs> written. And there was a lot of discussion about whether it would be in the film or not. And, um, and then it was like this, we got to keep it totally secret. You know, Celine Dion's doing it. We're like, no way. <laughs> so that was, again, one of those other moments where um, you just have this, you know, an incredible song. And I think that's one of the, the great things about film. I love, I love that songs do their thing in a film and the score does its thing in a film. Um, and when they can work together, um, it really you really can create something special. I mean, that was one of the fun things with Guardians is we had to be very aware of what what cues we were going into. You know, you have to think about key what key you're in. Mm. Is it is it smooth? Same with Hobbs and Shaw. You know, when when we're working on Hobbs and Shaw, it was uh, very important to make sure that we were segueing in and out of songs um, in a smooth way, and that there was that, that that each both the song and the score are doing their jobs. Um, so, um, that's, that's always a, that's always a fun thing, but you sort of have that very clearly defined right from the beginning of a film of, 
where the song is going to come in and where it's going to come out and where you need to take over as a composer and, and, uh, you know, carry the baton to the next place. So, uh, before, before we, uh, started recording, you mentioned that you, you have a few things that are in the works, uh, that were, were completed before everything was shut down. Um, are there any of those you can talk about as we wrap up here? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, one of the one of the fun projects I got to do last year was the um, AMC Shutter Creep Show, season one, which was a co-score with Tyler Bates, and had a had a blast. Um, amazing um, producer Brian Witten, an amazing uh, creator, um, showrunner uh, Greg Nicotero from Walking Dead, and th- it was just for me again. It was. To be able to do something that was a um, was a was a, uh, a throwback to, you know, like a reboot of an '80s, was 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 a lot of fun. Uh, we were just very honored to be asked to um, come up with a new theme for the reboot, um, which for me was a dream come true. I mean, I, I for me, Creep Show, the original, and that whole '80s horror was such, I was such a huge fan of it, and to then literally be told well you get to create the new theme for for creep show it was a dream come true and it's such a it's it was such a great first season um season two you know is um uh unfortunately got caught in the covid i think they got half of it out of the way so you know we're, we'll see what happens um with that great show um the other film that i did do is a film called finding you um, which is about a young girl who uh, did who's trying to get into um, a prestigious music school. She plays violin, and her life's kind of falling apart. So she heads off. It's a it's a coming of age story. She heads off to Ireland, um, and um, so that one I, I co-scored with Kieran Kiley, and it's so much fun. It, it's and we got we actually literally I, I did the orchestra two days before COVID shut down. <laughs> so we had everything recorded, um, but it's full on Irish. Kieran Kiley is, he's an arranger um, producer for the Coors and Sinead O'Connor and um, uh, tons of other really great Irish bands. And so I brought him on to, uh, to co-score it with me. And that right now we think is going to come out early 2021 um but we managed to get that finished um and then two other projects that are uh one one is a a film called gringa which is also a coming of age story of a girl who goes down to mexico to find her father a beautiful story um and the final film i'm waiting on is a a film called swearing jar um which which is um a canadian film that's been greenlit by um uh, telefilm in Canada and we've been trying to get going on this for about a year or so and of course literally the day they get the financing <laughs> it gets shut down from COVID so right now we were supposed to be up in Toronto filming it um, but it's a song based um, really poignant story um, and so we were going to you know record you know basically prelay all the songs and then record them live up in Toronto and the filming was meant to be going ahead, but uh, that's been postponed until TBD. You know, we'll mm-hmm. find out what happens with COVID. So, um, so yeah, so those are the, the upcoming films uh, that I have. 
Um, some, some, they're all, you know, different projects are all in various stages of, of, um, wait and see. Um, but hopefully everything will open up soon and we can, uh, get back to, you know, having fun and creating, creating some really great entertainment for people. Well, thank you so much. This has been like even better than I expected. So, um, thank you. Like this has been a real delightful way to spend my afternoon. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you. And, 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 uh, stay safe. Um, yeah, be, you know, be careful and, uh, uh, great, great pleasure chatting with you. Thanks to Timothy Williams for talking with me. You can follow him on Twitter at L.A. Beach House and on Facebook at Timothy Williams Composer. His website is timothywilliams.net. You can find links to purchase all of the music you heard on the show in the show notes for this episode, which are at fromaninspiredby.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at fromaninspiredpod and can be found on Instagram at fromaninspiredby. You can subscribe to us via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Click those follow and subscribe buttons, please. Please hit up the website and click on the aid and assistance button to help us pay for web hosting and long distance fees. And remember to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. We'll be back in a few days talking with composer Kyle Newmaster about his work on the CBS series Blood and Treasure, as well as a slew of Star Wars games. Until then, thanks for listening. Somewhere in your cologne